Hello and welcome. You are listening to Resiliency, a podcast that takes an inside look at enhancing the vitality and resilience of field workers. From experts in member care to frontline field workers, our guests will bring you their experience, their lessons learned, and always something practical you can take away and use to increase your resiliency in cross-cultural life and ministry. Co-hosts Silas West and Steve Finley are just one part of an ever-growing and strengthening net of member care in the Antioch movement. They want to see Matthew 24, 14 happen and do everything they can to help field workers have the kind of resilience that enables them to make it for the long haul. Hey there, Resiliency listeners. Uh, This is a little bit of an unusual episode. Uh, It was not set out to be an interview per se, but it was part of a training that one of my friends, Trey Green, who works here at Antioch, he and I did for uh, Antioch's Acts of Mercy, which is our which is our disaster relief arm of ministry. So you're not going to see a question answer format like you typically do. It's more of just uh, Trey and I having a dialogue about the theology of suffering. So I thought later this could make a pretty good episode for resiliency, and uh, so I, I edited it down. And here you go. Um, so I'm really glad that we're doing this. That's going to yeah, be fun. And I don't really, I don't have an agenda for our conversation. I think we're just going to, we're going to have the conversation, but I was just thinking about this as I was driving over here, how I think you and I both bring two unique perspectives of suffering into this conversation. And from, from what I've heard, and I don't want to assume that I know what you're going to, what you're going to talk about, but um, you from that place of deferred hope of the promises of God, and how do we sit in that, that uh, liminal space of, of living with and living without actually seeing that that promise of God fulfilled yet, how do we live in that place? And then me from that perspective of like, how do we deal with a, a world that is so broken in terms of yeah. poverty and injustice? And uh, from that place of 11 years of living in a South Asia slum, both of these things together uh, really, I think, give a, a full picture or much more full picture of what, what kind of suffering that we have to theologize through. And and I know maybe there's other things too that you are, are, are saying, but I've, I've heard you talk about that and know that that is, that is a place where you've had to suffer yourself and, um, and see to, in order to see the faithfulness of God lived out through uh, promises, uh, promises kept, it required a place of suffering. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about this today as well. And, and I was thinking through what caused me the most, difficulty and and what what I would call suffering of the of the emotion and suffering of the psyche and it almost always could be traced back to an expectation I had on how things should work versus how they did yeah and and so coming face to face in a foreign place with a kingdom that op- with a kingdom a spiritual kingdom that actually operates quite differently than how I hoped and expected it would was some of my deepest places of struggle of, you know, coming to that understanding and, and realization that his ways are really higher than mine and that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, and so, yes, there's, there's the struggle of the waiting, but there's also just the struggle of Lord, I, I thought in your kingdom, it wouldn't be like fill in the blank of whatever thing you're experiencing and having to translate that into your theology of God's goodness and, and his love and his plan for salvation for all. It, it's, it, those were the things I think that shook me the deepest hmm. that had to have a resolve in order for me to, to be able to move forward. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
And what were some of those expectations for you? Yeah, and so I, I think I think part of it is the, the is the romantic romanticization. Uh, that didn't say that word right. The romancing of the nations, where you have this I- idea that going to the nations is somehow this glorious pursuit that is the highest calling in Christendom, and so God must be willing to meet you powerfully there and extend supernatural blessings through everything that you say and do. And in reality, what it is is like anything else in the kingdom. It's an invitation to die, to come to the end of yourself, Uh, to discover that within you are not all the answers that the people need, uh, to learn that it really does take your life being laid down and your expectations and hopes not being the lead piece anymore in order for the kingdom of God to tangibly come among a people of which it has not before. And so some of that's created in, in, in some of the uh, of the rah-rah celebratory environments we create around going to the nations um, where it's where it's where it's highly highly visioned, um, but not envisioned, um, and so we vision it very very well. But we we don't always envision. And I'm not talking about us. Period. It's across the of all Christendom that does this. But we don't envision people always well enough for the cost of of bringing a the kingdom to earth mm-hmm. and partnership with the Lord. And so I, I think that's that's one way the expectations were set. Um, two, I just think I carried my own expectations. You know, enough people tell you that going overseas makes you a hero. You start to believe it and, and you get over there and you recognize that, eh, not so much. Yeah. I, I think those are probably the two biggest things that, that I came into contact with. And, I, and maybe the third is, is that I expected, I expected quick results when I, when I first went over there, I, 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 I describe it as having new missionary disease. Um, where you think the only thing missing was your per, your participation and your faith level from the breakthrough in the lands where for no for two thousand years there hasn't been breakthrough, and I think all of those things had to violently land on the cross in order for me to be able to actually move forward in effective ministry. Yeah, and that one you said about the kind of our we we vision for it well, but don't always envision what that will look like and what that will mean, and and I. I'm, kind of was, I think was sharing with you a little bit the other day, but seeing how so much of our, our theology is shaped by only one side of kind of the, the worship language of the Bible. Yep. And, um, and, and with that being kind of the, that, that worship language of praise, which is the, this is the great things that God has done and, and what we expect him, for him to do over identifying with that one form of praise and then the other, or one form of worship language and, and yeah. not really having language then for the lament which is half of all of the worship language in the Bible from the Old yes. Testament to the New Testament. We don't really have, we, we've become illiterate to a whole part of the language. And then that, that does not set us up well for experiencing suffering. Yeah. And, and I, and I think sometimes um, the, the way I'm phrasing it now, though, this is a not right way to phrase it. There's a better way, but it's pursuit of, of what I'm going to call the passive presence of God versus the active presence. The, yes. the passive presence is the be still and know that I'm God piece mm-hmm. that, that, that seems to be at the heart of what so many, so many people are doing. And we get caught up in encounter and moving forward into the next experience with God. But there is also this active and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age peace. And it is in walking with him that we encounter the suffering that leads us to lament. Uh, mm-hmm. Lament to me is the is is the product 
of walking with him into places that are dead that need life. And if I live in a protected environment where the only desire is to experience him and it's, it's, it's me calling out for him to come, um, I don't, I don't find myself in the place of needing to lament. Yeah. Um, and the status yeah, that doesn't was, need to be changed versus it's that cry out. We, we actually need to change the status quo in yes. order to experience something new and, and fresh from him. And it's so precious. I mean, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it I don't know how to, yeah, it, it's just precious. The, the ability to have those unfiltered pouring out of the heart not from a lack of trust from one who's hearing, but from one who is walking with you in the midst of it and, and wor- working through the disappointment, frustration, pain, all the things you're encountering, and even the, the hopelessness that can, can, can come from time to time, and then landing in that place of his goodness and, and having him meet you there in a way that, I, I mean, I've just never had him meet me like he does in those places. Mm. I was talking with somebody that we would both know. Um, so therefore I can't give too many details. Fair enough. <laughs> but I was talking with, with this person who was experiencing a lot of grief uh, from, from some serious loss in their life and not really knowing how to, to process it well, which is often why people come and talk to me. Yes. But um, th- that the conversation as he was presenting the problem was help me get through this grief so that I can experience God again. Mm. And, um, and, and that wasn't exactly his words, but that was pretty much what he was, what he was trying to say to me. And I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying is, is the invitation from God that I offered him was, why don't you, why don't you try to experience God in the place of your grief yeah. instead of trying to get through it and have this, you know, go God victory story that we can share in front of staff meeting. Um, instead have the wow the encounter i had with god in this place of my pain in this liminal space of my pain as is versus my pain as a as it was yeah. and uh and and so what he came back to me a couple of weeks later he was actually really disappointed that that was my advice and then came back uh, a few few several weeks later saying um well i i was disappointed i was a little angry with you and then I, I took that to God and he gave me a picture of a dark room and a chair in the middle of the room. And I knew that he wanted me to sit in the chair and I sat down in it. And the dark room was kind of the representation of my, my emotions, my, my grief, my loss, the suffering that I was experiencing. And what I saw was him pull up a chair and sit down next to me. And there wasn't this, here's the words you need to hear to get out of this. It was, I'm going to, the, the best place for us to be right now together is in this place in the middle of this room yeah. and he said that picture transformed my whole understanding of what what it means what god's faithfulness looks like faithfulness isn't always the breakthrough yeah and sometimes the faithfulness and, and he said my definition of faithfulness was god breaking through until until that yeah and 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 another story um and again i won't use the name but a family getting ready to go to the mission field and they go to get just some different vaccinations and different things. And the husband has an incredible reaction to one of the medications that they had taken and it caused a blackness to settle over his mind. 
Mm-hmm. And whether it was caused by the medication or not caused by the medication is, is not the point. But the point was, is they were, they were in line to go and this settles on him and he can't get out of it. And mm-hmm. I remember sitting with them at a park really close to, to my house. When, and I looked at him and I said, hey, you have two choices here. I said, choice one is that you can live the life of pursuit of fixing this issue. And you've been to a bunch of places, you've been to mental places, medical places, everyone's telling you, we don't know what the deal is. I said, or you can learn to meet God in the dark. And I said, and if you can learn to meet God in the dark, you're going to find that there is enough for you to walk in obedience to what he's calling you to. And they prayed, prayed it through, and ultimately they went. And they were overseas for years. And I ran into him. They're, they're home now. Uh, and I ran into him not too long ago. And I said, hey, man, how is it? He goes, it's still dark every day. Wow. He said, there are, days where, there are days where I have little breakthroughs. He said, but I have met him so powerfully in the dark that I've become okay with not always being able to see clearly. And it's just this powerful picture of how meeting Jesus in that place that we don't understand that, that, that goes beyond if he's good, how could this possibly happen to me as I'm trying to obey him and walk into what he's calling me to. But in reality, this man now has an expression of intimacy experience with Jesus that few of us will ever have. And and now it's a place of thankfulness for him, though he wishes that tomorrow it would lift and it would never be there again. Um, the, the, the power of recognizing that in the places where we don't understand or where we're hurting or, we, or where things aren't clear, pressing into him gives us a unique opportunity to encounter him in a personal way. Um, that's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple that you and I know well, Chris and Rebecca McBride, when they talk yeah. about their experience in, uh, in, in Jordan, af- the afterward part of how do we now live? After encountering God so so intimately in prison, how now do we go about life outside of prison? Is kind of a when I, when I when they said that I was like, what on earth? But yes, it makes sense in light of that. Um, no, they don't really want to go back to prison, but nope. yet, yes, like I don't know how to live now without that 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 intimacy with Jesus, and that that's what I experienced in the prison. Yeah. So the thing that we're trying to help people identify and come up with is a theology of suffering. I I know that we can't really tell people what their theology of suffering is, but so far the two things that come to mind in in light of our conversation is we have to have different expectations for ourselves and of God, but also then we have to have a language that allows us to talk about suffering in a way that isn't necessarily expecting. It's not looking at suffering as the, the, the context of breakthrough that we need to, to experience God's faithfulness, but we need to have language to allow us to, to be in suffering, which our North American culture doesn't really uh, set us up well for. No, it does not. <laughs> when you're working with uh, people in the CP school and talking about expectations, what are some of the things that you you help them to, to clarify in, in order to identify where maybe some of these uh, unrealistic expectations might, might trip them up? Yeah, so so one of the things that we that we hit on from the beginning, in the middle, at the end, in the process before, in the process after, is um, 
pushing people to recognize and understand and count the cost mm. um, to de-romanticize the nations as much as we possibly can and to help people understand that it is not simply your presence, it's your perseverance that's going to bring about the harvest that you're that you're looking for. And so when we when we hit the different issues that come up, and you know the one that comes up the most, and and it, it has different names and different things attached to it, but at the center is the same issue, and that is whether or not people truly believe in the goodness of God or not. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me as people talk through their different reservations about responding in obedience to what God's called them to as they respond to, you know, different scenarios that we put them through to consider what could potentially happen in the field and and how would you respond to it. That Mm -hmm. how often in their initial visceral response to the emotion at the heart of it is this question, is God really good? Is it possible that he could allow me to suffer and still be completely good and meet me and have it be the best thing for me. And it's, it's so hard in a laboratory environment to create the reality of what it is experientially, but it's enough that causes that question to bubble to the surface. And then we challenge people. Let's go there. Let's start studying the goodness of God. Let's start talking to him about his goodness. Let's rehearse the goodness of God that he's done in the past. Let's talk about the expectation of the goodness of God in the future. And one of the things that that is a rule in the CP school is that we use sanctified what ifs. And that means that you're not allowed to have a what if statement that ends with anything other than hopefulness for something better than you can ask or imagine. So we're not allowed to say, what if God doesn't meet me? No, we change that. What if God meets me so powerfully in the midst of my struggle, suffering, and and difficulty that the transformation in the land and me is so mind-boggling, I can't handle it. Um, And we're just trying to keep people in the place where the goodness of God is at the front of their expectation. Um, to try to get them to a place when when they're seeing circumstances they don't understand that the bedrock in their heart is, but I know that God is good. So I can go to him. I trust in his promises. I trust that what he says is going to happen. And so I can come to him in circumstances I don't understand that he can navigate me through them. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that that, that idea of changing the, the goodness of God as the filter through which we view the circumstances That's versus... Right. The other the other way around and i think we're conditioned as as i mean not this isn't a, a slam on anything it's just the reality of our more privileged lives in north america where we're kind of conditioned to um because things are good god is good and because my life is is relatively easy god is good it's an evidence of god's goodness yeah. and then we get into situations in the world that you know like uh an earthquake where a church crushes. I remember this time in Nepal, I was talking with this young man, um, somebody I'd known when I used to do ministry there and he had been at a church, his church and uh, 250 people in crammed into this little uh, house church kind of a scenario when the earthquake occurred. And he had just gone out to go to the bathroom and was 
caught in the doorway of the the room where the bathroom was, which uh, then the earthquake happened. And so he, his life was spared and the building collapsed on the rest of the 250 people. And, um, and as he was trapped in there for 15 hours, listening to the sounds of his brothers and sisters in Christ dying, crying out for help. And then their, their cries turned to moans, their moans turned to silence. And then he was the only one left out of that whole congregation alive. And, um, and just sitting and listening to him, of course, his question was, uh, was not, is God good? Because he was, con- he was more conditioned to, to suffering from his worldview than I was. Yeah. It, it was from that perspective of God's good. How do I get through this connected to a good God yeah. with, with my eyes on a good God? How do I get through this? Yeah. Cause I'm in pain and, uh, and I'm hearing it from a very different place of wow, I'm, so thankful that you are still aware and cognizant of his goodness because in light of that it would be hard for me to 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 not think alternatively and just our our, we're not conditioned to to see things from that perspective and so we have to teach ourselves to change rethink it's not the it's not the circumstances that are evidence of god's goodness it's his goodness regardless of the circumstances amen (laughs) amen Matt, if we can get our whole head around that, that's, but I, I've watched in, in, you know, doing some of the the justice work that I was a part of for so many years, watched so many people who had really great expectations of taking the kingdom of God and its values into these broken places in the world. But then when you're really confronted with the, the harsh reality of those circumstances in those conditions, be starting to become hopeless and beginning to question, can God really be good if this is going on in the world? If these people are suffering and there's no end to the suffering, even if I change the life of one person, there's still 20 million in the city that are still suffering. How can that, how can God really be good if that's the reality? Watching so many people struggle with that and some of them even turn away from the Lord has been, uh, it's become something that I can't, I don't know how to put it into words, but I'm just, I'm passionate about is helping people to, to, to stick with and, and start with, I love the way that you put it, but start with God's goodness. And visioning suffering is actually also helpful mm. um, because Paul, you know, there is a, there is a very common cry that you hear in the worship room. Show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to be a part of your glory. Let your glory fall upon us. But Paul very clearly says that the pathway to sharing in his glory is sharing in his sufferings. <laughs> you know, in Romans 8, where he says, you know, we are heirs with uh, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And, and, and so there is this cart before the horse mentality that we sometimes carry yeah. in, in our privilege that, that un, unintentionally, but to our detriment, describes suffering in a negative category when Jesus actually and Paul actually saw suffering as a gateway into something far greater, not something far worse. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we bring the Holy Spirit into suffering, we're actually setting people up to encounter the glory of God in unprecedented ways. And, and, and so I, I think there's just, I think there's just something powerful that has to be reestablished in our theology surrounding suffering uh, that doesn't see it as something to be avoided, um, but actually to be embraced. 
um, that there is a way of meeting God and understanding, you know, even Jesus saying for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross scorning at shame. There was this place of Jesus's recognition that the momentary suffering was going to release something far greater. And so he didn't focus on the now, he focused on the coming. And we have to figure out how to capture that. <laughs> and uh, I think that language, uh, let's talk about those two languages, of the worship languages that we see in the Bible, where it's not saying we shouldn't have a mentality of, of breakthrough yeah. in our, our theology. We should live with an expectation that God's going to do something amazing around every corner. But at the same time, there's this deep place of lament where there's so much about our world that we have to recognize it's a not yet kingdom. That's right. And, and it's the intersection of those two that is where we get the fullness of the gospel. And if we can hold our theology in, in like holding the tension between those two constantly, that's where we see the fullness of, of the gospel lived out in our own lives and, and where we can experience it in the world. I learned a lot about this. When I was overseas, I, I started uh, studying the Psalms of Asaph, and it, it's, it's really interesting um, because I, I did a lot of study on Asaph. I just want to figure out who this dude was, and Asaph was responsible for the music under David's regime, hmm. and and so you've got the dude who was David's worship leader, which you got you just put just think about that just in and of itself, and there's one particular Psalm that I think encapsulates him, uh, Psalm 77, and to, to put a little background on what was happening here, you know, these incredible promises had been made, made to David, that the one in your line will remain on the throne forever. Uh, and David's direct heir was Solomon, who was like no other who had ever come before. Hmm. And there began to develop in the, in the people this belief that that prophecy was being fulfilled in their time that they were actually experiencing the fulfillment of the one who could be because he had wisdom like no other. The rulers of the earth came from around everywhere. And so there was this great expectation that was building in the community of Israel at the time. And then Solomon began to fall away from the Lord. He began to pursue the, the, the wealth and the women and the, and the notoriety and all those things. And, they, and they're watching before their eyes the hope that they had for their kingdom to be established literally fritter. They had this great expectation and it is just literally going away. And, and he, he utters this phrase. He said, will the Lord reject forever and will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And so he just, he's, he is like, I had all of these expectations for what this was going to look like. And it feels like everything that God promised us as a people has now fallen apart. <laughs> and he comes before heaven and he just lets it rip. All of his expectations, all of his frustrations, he throws it all to the Lord. And then he says, and then I thought to this, I will appeal the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. And so he's he's now stirring himself up with what he's known to be true versus what he's seeing right now mm -hmm. in an effort to take the, the unfulfilled expectations 
and filter them through a truth that he knows to be right, though he doesn't feel it in the moment. He feels like garbage right now. And he makes a few more statements in regards to what God has done. And then he ends in, in verse, starting in verse 16, and he's talking about God leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. And he says, the water saw you, O God, the water saw you and writhed and the very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water, the skies resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Mm. And he starts establishing this understanding of there are ways of God that go beyond my ability to track his feet. Mm -hmm. And this understanding that his greatness and his faithfulness and his proven goodness and his track record and his history over time, though it lead through suffering, though it lead through difficulty, I cannot become accustomed to the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud. I have to trust in him. And it's this resolve that begins to rise up in his heart that says, I cannot track his footsteps in what's happening right now. That's good. But I remember another time when we couldn't do it. And I'm going to go back to there to give myself hope for now. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what faith is. is I think our expectations create a, a sense of certainty. And, yeah. uh, and uncertainty is the, the thief of faith because uh, when our yes, certainty bubble gets burst, then we have nothing left. But when our, when we're allowed, allowing ourselves to have the, the hard questions like he did yeah. and recognize that God holds space for those questions and allows us to ask them. Amen. Um, that's when, that's when we actually, we can, we can find faith because faith is not in the evidence of what we can see, but in what we actually can't. That's right. I have no evidence for. And, and Silas, to be honest, I've learned that certainty is like the worst kind of low bar living period. <laughs> because if his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts than mine, and if he does more than I can ask or think, if I am living in, in the expectation of my own personal certainty, mm-hmm. I am actually trusting for an outcome far, far less than what he has. And if I lock myself into it, I miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So theology of suffering, it's, it's not just a one little thing, is it? There's just so much to it, but yet it's so crucial to being able to, to survive, survive and thrive in this world of ministry, especially when we're, we're faced with pain, like a, the acts of mercy folks are going to be looking yeah. at and seeing the, some of the harshest realities of, that the world has to offer That's right. and trying to hold on to a, a, tr- a belief that, that God is still good. And, uh, and it's not, has nothing to do with these, these tragedies that we're in the midst of. <sighs> yeah. And, and my hope for them is that they will, that they will pursue and receive revelation that being materially provided for and going to hell is no less tragic than encountering people who are in desperate need and and going to hell it's it's that there's this incredible 
main idea that's that that has to be engaged and addressed, which is yes, there is injustice in the world. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is hunger and poverty and injustice and abuse and all these kinds of things. And there is a savior mm. and he promises to be with us as we go and touch the least of these. And then he promises that, Hey, sometimes you're actually touching me. This is, this is service unto me. This is, you want to get to the heart of who I am. This, this is what it is. Thanks for joining us today. If you found this episode helpful, you might want to check out another episode we did, episode number two, The Uninvited Companion with Scott Schaum, which is another episode where we explore suffering as it relates to deepening our resiliency. Also, as Steve and I plan for future episodes, we would love to have feedback from you. Do you have ideas for subjects that we should highlight? If so, we want to hear from you. Email us at resiliencypodcast at antiochwaco.com or hit us up on Instagram at resiliencypodcast. Remember that the only topics we will consider are ones that are directly related to developing and enhancing resilience in global workers. So Steve and I would be happy to try out your grandma's chocolate chip cookie recipe, but it likely won't make it as a conversation on the podcast. So send us your reviews, your thoughts, and your ideas, and thanks for listening to this episode of Resilience.